Hey, .NET Rocks listeners. So you never went to NDC. I get that. It's Norway. It's Oslo. But did you know that the videos for all the sessions are online? Yeah, go to vimeo.com slash ndcoslo. You'll see some amazing sessions, and they're all right there. And if you're really curious, you can check out the lineup for NDC 2014, which is happening June 2nd through 6th. ndcoslo.com is the website, but again, if you want to check out the videos, vimeo.com, that's V-I-M-E-O dot com slash ndcoslo. Richard and I will be there this year. Maybe we'll see you too. .NET Rocks episode 982 with guest Doug Crockford. Recorded Wednesday, April 16th, 2014. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. We're in the same room again. <laughs> the, yeah, the Milagro boardroom in the JW Marriott. Yeah, at Dev Intersection in Orlando, Florida, the happiest place on earth. And you've been having fun with your girls. I have, and uh, had a lot of fun this morning watching Doug Crockford's keynote. Uh, yeah. He's here with us. We'll get to him in just a few minutes. And, uh, so, you know, apologize for the echoiness, maybe, uh, that you're hearing in this room, but that's what we got. That's what happens when you're on set shows. Yeah, but I guess we should just go ahead and roll that stupid music, shouldn't we? Let's better know a framework. Yeah. All right, buddy, what do you got? So, uh, I found a pretty cool alternative on CodePlex to um, terminal services and remote desktop, the remote desktop client, but this one uses tabs, and it's secure, and of course you get the code. So, this is Terminals. Terminals.codeplex.com. It's a secure multi-tab terminal services and remote desktop client. Awesome. So it uses the terminal services ActiveX client. And uh, from the notes on the page, the project started from the need of controlling multiple connections simultaneously. Hmm. And if you're like me, you don't just have one server. You never open one RDP session. You yeah. open half a dozen. And of course, you know, they're in, you know, you can run into problems with that. So. There you go. A complete replacement for the MSTSC executable client. Nice. Yeah. Nice find. Yeah, it's pretty good. And uh, it's um, enjoying some popularity right now. So go check it out. Terminals.codeplex.com. Cool. So who's talking to us, my friend? I grabbed a comment off of show 967, and that is the one we did with Mr. Papa, talking about single-page applications. By the way, did you know that somebody tweeted that we talked to him so much about spas that he should change his name to John Spaspa? <laughs> I don't think he liked that. No, kind it's of pretty much. funny though. <laughs> and we've seen him here. He's been, he's been great. Yeah. Uh, the conference is going really well. This comment comes from Eric Olson who says, I really enjoyed the show. Just finished it up on my drive into work this morning. One comment John made, which didn't have any follow up was that he was not vehemently, but was opposed to TypeScript over JavaScript. Why is that? At work, we are about to start a web-based project, only our second one in the group, and I was evaluating TypeScript as a way to help ease the transition from C-sharp to JavaScript. I'm in the middle of John and Dan's TypeScript course on Pluralsight, and I thought TypeScript would make a good fit for our skill set and the project. I welcome any feedback from people who have done projects in teams using TypeScript. Specifically, if they are at the end of the project, would have to do it all over again, would they use TypeScript? Keep up the great shows. I may have to start looking for a new job farther away from home to accommodate the extra episode each week. Ah. <laughs> you know, uh, Eric, you don't have to listen on your commute. There's also mowing the lawn. 
exercising, yep. or washing dishes. Yeah. You can make your wife happy by washing all the dishes by hand and laughing while you do it. That's right. <laughs> I got, a, got an email from a listener one time. She says, okay, I started washing dishes to listen to the daughter rocks. Now my wife thinks I'm crazy because I keep laughing while I wash dishes. And the other comment we get is that, you know, they have this flash of, oh my God, I have to stop what I'm doing right now and go write some code. <laughs> and then the dishes never, never get, get clean. Never right? get finished. So we're sorry, you know, that we did that to you. But uh, And thinking back on the show when John was talking about TypeScript. I mean, one of the, and I think, I almost feel like Eric answered his own question because John, while a, a C-sharp programmer, is also very much a JavaScript programmer. And I don't know that TypeScript's all that important to him mm. in terms of organizing his thinking. What I think makes sense with TypeScript is that it's really a good tool for folks that have been living in C-sharp and are just getting used to JavaScript. And so right. they get a little more structured and so forth. I, and I mean, in the end, it's all JavaScript all the way down. Sure. So it doesn't really matter one way or the other. You want to use CoffeeScript or anything else for that matter. Mm-hmm. So I don't think John's necessarily negative about it. And I realize also that Eric is writing this comment with the hope of soliciting other comments. Yeah. So I hope anybody listening to this, jump on and uh, put out your opinions as well. We'd love to have a conversation about And a about coffee this. mug, of course. Of course, because Eric, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. And we make them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, releasing still over 40 new courses a month, probably more by now, offering a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. With a full curriculum on web development with lots and lots of courses on ASP.NET, of course, lots of jQuery, JavaScript, CoffeeScript, all of that stuff, HTML5. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to our esteemed guest, Douglas Crockford. Uh, Doug was born in the wilds of Minnesota, but left when he was only six months old because it was just too damn cold. <laughs> he said, Mama, get me out of here. He turned his back on a promising career in television when he discovered computers. Uh, he's worked in learning systems, small business systems, office automation, games, interactive music, multimedia, location-based entertainment, social systems, and programming languages. He is the inventor of Tilton, the ugliest program language that was not specifically designed to be an ugly programming language. He is best known for having discovered that there are good parts in JavaScript. This was an important and unexpected discovery. He discovered the JSON data interchange format, and he's currently working on making the web a secure and reliable software delivery platform. He has his work cut out for him, to say the least. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. We just uh, saw your awesome keynote here at Angle Brackets, and uh, wow. What a great show. And I noticed both in your bio, and you said this in the keynote as well, that you say you discovered JSON, but not invented? Right. But you really clearly did put that protocol together. Right. It, my perspective is it already existed in nature. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I identified it, described it, showed its applications, but I... I can't claim to have invented it. Right, so it's like finding the horse and saying, we could ride that. So yeah. you said, ah, this is a fine example of formatus jasonus <laughs> existing in the wild. You also showed a graph, which I thought was great, of uh, XML versus JSON usage 
and the XML going way down since 2005, I think it was, mm-hmm. and JSON on a steady rise, but still, you know, low in comparison to XML. Well, you can go to Google Trends and, and say JSON, XML, and you'll get the same graph. Nice. And so it shows interest as interest is understood by Google, which isn't necessarily what anybody is thinking about or doing. Mm-hmm. It's what are they searching for? And a lot of the searching for XML is, how do I make this work? Right. Um, and so there's always going to be much less volume in JSON because it just works. And so, <laughs> right. <laughs> ah, interesting. So are there any ways to measure what's being actually used in the world? I don't know how to do that measurement. I wouldn't either. Um, but, you know, XML was intended to be, to re- replace all the web technology, right? right? It was, it was, as a document format, it was intended to replace HTML. Sure. Yeah. And XHTML. W- yeah. Standard nobody could ever comply with. Yeah. It totally failed. Right. So mm-hmm. we went back to HTML and HTML had a resurgence and it's going on. Mm-hmm. And it was also intended to be the data interchange format and that failed as well. So there's still places where XML um, has survived. In some cases, it's just because it's in the enterprise. When yeah. something gets in the enterprise, it can take a long a time lot to of get inertia. rid of it. Yeah. And there's some applications where it probably makes sense. I don't know what those are, but I, I got to believe that, <laughs> that there are some. You just want to believe that there's always a purpose for everything somewhere. It, it, that's exactly right. Everything is sometimes useful. <laughs> so I got to... I got to tell you that uh, in 1994, I believe it was, I wrote a book on internet programming, not knowing anything about XML, not knowing because, you know, clearly there was, it was very early and not knowing anything about the word serialization, but clearly knowing that I had an object or I had data over here and I wanted it to go over there. It seemed like a natural thing to do was to put together some long string format that would represent an object. So I cooked up this idea to do just that, to have, you know, data types represented by a number and then uh, links represented by a number and to sort of have this binary format that just allowed me to quickly, and I didn't know I was doing it, but serialize and deserialize an object. And, um, and that turned out to be one of the most, uh, what shall I say, commented on features of the software that I, examples that I provided in the book, even though it really wasn't about internet programming. It was really about just transferring data and objects over a network. But I think JSON really exemplifies the simplicity of that. And if you look at what the output is for a simple object and how easily uh, it serializes, it just, just looks it looks like an object, you know, it doesn't look like it's filled with a bunch of garbage and stuff that you have to figure out. I don't, you know, uh, why do we have a URL to a schema? You know, what is that all about? (laughs) I just want to see my data, you know? So I got a lot of abuse when I introduced Jason. There are a lot of, you know, you're, you're defining the laws of nature. You know, we've already got this figured out. How dare you reinvent the wheel? Right. And, And my answer was, the good thing about reinventing the wheel is you can get around one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you said that people were very passionately oh, yeah, they, angry, they were, and not only that, but death threats? There were literally death threats. Wow. That is taking data interchange a bit too seriously. And, you know, before the death threats, there were claims that, 
well, that can't possibly work. You know, we've XML is so complicated, and we've invested in that complexity, and it's complex for a reason, and we wouldn't be doing something this complex unless there was a really good reason. And you said, okay, what's the reason? Well, I didn't say, I uh, just showed the alternative. And, you know, another source of early resistance was, where's the huge tool stack that we need in order to make this simple to use? Yeah. So we don't have one. There's a little encoder and decoder, and that's all there is. What? Yeah. (laughs) That's just crazy talk, Mr. Crockford. What are you thinking? Well, you you mean in the serialization you described, Carl, you have metadata around your data, right? A data type and a length. Right. And and Jason just sort of doesn't bother with any of that. And that was all over sockets, right? Yeah. So that's essentially what has been going on in computer science since day one. Sure. Right. Right. But the, the brilliant thing in, in Jason came directly from JavaScript. You know, you know, I give Brendan Knight credit for that, mm-hmm. that his object literals were such a brilliant idea, such a powerful way of representing the idea of new objects. I just stole that idea and said, let's apply that to data interchange. Mm. Yeah, just make it work. And it, and it fits into HTTP. It doesn't violate any requirements. Like, it's, it's pretty simple. Yeah, and there were earlier languages, too, like... Uh, the Lisp community had S expressions, which were lots of things wrapped in parentheses. Yes, they do like the parentheses in Lisp. Very much so. Perhaps too much so. <laughs> yeah. And there were Lispers who were proposing S expressions as the interchange format, hmm. which would have been great. Um, but the the rest of the world can't balance parentheses right. the way they can. And again, you're adding syntax where syntax, the only syntax in JSON is the carriage return. Well, no, we've we got curly braces and commas and brackets. Yeah, okay. yeah this, there is a bit of, of sugar. Yeah. Um, it's so, minimal. Sl- well, S expressions would be more minimal. Mm. Uh, they got it down to just parents. Yeah. Mm. Um, but you so, have to balance them. Well, it turns out you have to balance the curly braces, too. Yeah. But there's a lot less. And so it, it was a pretty good match to people who are used to a C tradition. So one of the things that I think... Uh, made XML way too complex, and this is probably true of a lot of technologies when people discover them and they want to use them for everything, is that uh, we thought that we would have to take our complex objects that are our data types, you know, and map them to your complex objects, which are your data types, you know. And instead of simplifying the things that are going to be transported for transport, right, which is how many data types do we really need? You know, we have strings, we have numbers, we have maybe some decimals, and we have arrays or collections or whatever, and we have, uh, you know, some binary Dates. data. Um, you know, the, the list is kind of short when you boil it down to what we need for transport, you know. And then we can reconstitute it on the other side into whatever we need. Uh, and yeah, there were earlier formats that tried to solve the union problem. Yes. You know, I've got this language and this application with these types and that language, and how do we bridge them? It's not a transport issue. Yeah, and it turns out the union problem is a really hard one. Right. Jason instead does the intersection. You know, what is common between these applications yeah. and these languages? And that tends to be numbers, strings, simple structures, lists. That's about it. Right. And you get rid of all of the madness around. All that goes away. So I, 
I very explicitly said we're not being tied to IEEE floating point. Right. You know, because I don't know well, what's on the other side of the There's a bunch of IEEE engineers mad at you. There are, but, and they said it wouldn't work, but it works. Yeah. So we just put digits on the wire and we assume the guy on the other end knows what to do with digits. Right. Mm. We don't know exactly what he's going to do with them, but we figure he's going to get a number out of it somehow right. and, and he'll be happy to him with what that. he does with it. Yeah. And that turns out to work fine. Now, did you just implement this and the RFC came later? What order did you do things in? Uh, yeah. So in 2000, I put up a website. I, I managed to procure Jason.org. Yes. Um, and put up a one page site, which described it. And, uh, shortly after I put up a Java reference implementation, mm -hmm. which is still up there and still being used and kind of left it. You know, at that point, the doc, you can, it's like you've class. done your thinking, right? This is what I think, and the dot com, yeah, right. It's yeah, 2002, yeah. so the world's ended. Yeah, the world ended, <laughs> and so I went off and did other things for a while, and I thought, well, maybe someday <laughs> this will matter again. Yeah, the software industry will come back, and, and right. I'll do that again. <laughs> it was a dark year. It was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, so basically, I was putting a message format in a bottle, and I set it adrift in the internet. Right, and. People found it and said, well, this makes more sense than what we're doing right now and mm -hmm. started adopting it. And then when the Ajax thing was discovered in 2005, right. it took off because all the smart kids said trying to do Ajax with XML is just too hard. It's too bulky. Yeah. Should be Ajaj. Yeah. Well, it turns out the X and Ajax stands for Jason. Yeah. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, so in your keynote, uh, you, you talked about how it, it is really important to achieve perfection to remove the stuff that doesn't work uh, as much or if not more than um, adding things that do work um, or that's the only way to achieve perfection is by removing the things that don't work. And you uh, brought up uh, a pilot and I guess he, who made this quote. So yeah, can maybe, you tell that story? Uh, yeah, so he, he was an aviator. He was French. Obviously, which is why no one can pronounce his funny name. Okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, aviators at that time tended to crash. Yes. They tended to die. Yeah. Um, because the planes weren't very reliable. They were very much like our modern software systems. Right. They would, yeah. Every that's, once in a while they'd go down. Yeah. But just more dire consequences. Uh, generally. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, he was attempting to set a, a speed record between Paris and Saigon, but his plane went down in the Sahara Desert. Oh. And he survived the crash, remarkably, um, but almost didn't survive the desert. He was stranded there for a few days with inadequate water and supplies mm. and, and suffered terrible dehydration. But he was rescued and, and got better. But that experience had a huge impact on him. Mm -hmm. And he later wrote about it. Um, including the children's book, The Little Prince, hmm. which is about an, an aviator who is stranded in the desert, who's visited by a strange little boy who lives on an asteroid and is suicidal. Hmm. Okay. Beloved children's story. <laughs> yep. And he also wrote a, another book which contained that quote, that it seems that perfection is obtained not when there is nothing more to add, but when there is nothing more to subtract. Right. And he was writing about airplane design. But hmm. it's been applied to all sorts of things, to design, to engineering, to uh, 
architecture, anything which combines creativity with discipline. Mm -hmm. You know what? I'm immediately thinking of an interview with George Lucas when he was uh, talking about mapping out the story of Star Wars. And, and they, of course, you know, writers like to throw in so much story that ultimately they're chopping it down and chopping it down to try to get something that people will watch. And they're always asking the question, you know, the producer and the director are always, always asking the question, is this line, is this scene pertinent to the story? Does this advance the story or is this completely frivolous? You know, does this, does this actually fit or is it just there? And so they get rid of the stuff that doesn't advance the story. All about cutting away. All about cutting away the stuff that could potentially just bring the plane down. Yeah. And I think it is especially compelling when we're looking at programs because programs need to be perfect. Mm -hmm. A program that isn't perfect is buggy mm -hmm. and is likely to fail. And we cannot or should not tolerate that ever. Um, but perfection is really hard and we don't know how to do it. We don't even know how to recognize it. Should it ever happen? Yeah. Mm. yeah. How would you tell if he did get it? There's no way to know. You're just waiting for the next bug. There's maybe a people, long wait. There are some people who say if it passes all the tests, it's perfect. Yeah. And, and yeah. That, that's ridiculous. That, it just means that your tests aren't perfect. Yeah. Because if that's true, then eliminating tests will do a great job of making our software perfect. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I was talking to some people who are doing a study of programming style, trying to correlate programming style to real bug. Right. Which is a really interesting thing to measure because mm -hmm. most people who, who pontificate about programming style have no data at all to, to back up what they talk about. <laughs> Not easy data to collect either. I mean, that's a complex yeah. thing to actually study. Um, and so they were hoping to, as a result of their study, to come up with recommendations for good style. Mm -hmm. And they were using uh, automated techniques to try to discover these patterns. And very often, you know, big data fails, right? Because it right. correlates things which don't matter. One of the things they discovered was the longer a program is, the more likely it is to have bugs. <laughs> not, not surprising. Wow. So they came up with a recommendation, remove all the unnecessary white space, because that'll mm -hmm. make the program smaller. <laughs> and that worked very well with the, the correlations in their model. Yes. That practically is a ridiculous thing to do. Well, and it's yeah. also, so they were just measuring the wrong thing. You consider white space size? Right, yeah. Um, so just having a lot of data isn't the same as understanding what your data is mm -hmm. telling you. Actually figuring out what to measure. How do you measure success? is a huge problem in almost anything, at least with physical constructs. I think you, you have something to look at. You say, okay, well, that looks done. It's much harder to see well-arranged electrons as done. You know, computers are just that intangible when you mm -hmm. dig into their software. Mm -hmm. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Ah, must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to take away all the smart talk from this conversation, leaving only a perfect orb of dumbness. <laughs> It's perfect. Now Perfectly like dumb. Yeah. No, no. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about the Telerik platform. Create compelling app experiences across any screen with the Telerik platform. Telerik's end-to-end -end platform uniquely combines industry-leading UI tools with cloud services to simplify the entire app development lifecycle. Telerik offers everything .NET developers need to build quality apps faster. Try it free at Telerik.com slash platform. 
All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Jefferson Santos. Congratulations, Jefferson. Yeah. So uh, he Golf just clapped for you. No clappers today. No clappers today. So Jefferson just won the Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. That's just about everything they do in one box. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. We give away $5,000 every December worth <laughs> of technology to one lucky member. And uh, we give away stuff in every show. And we like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, Senor Crockford, right now, like let's go shopping, what would you buy? Oh, I would give it to a school. Uh, schools have, are, are terribly constrained in budget, and I would mm. find some way to, to give it to them. I, I'm totally with you. Yeah. You know, both Carl and I... Uh, teach at our respective school at the various schools that our kids have been in because they they're so backward in technology right now but there's also this movement thinking we should teach everybody programming i don't know if that's necessarily a good idea i used to believe that and i don't anymore interesting um when i first learned to program i had this epiphany like it changed everything right i had this way of controlling and understanding everything in the world it was empowering and wonderful right and giddy and I thought everybody needs to learn this, but I don't believe that anymore. What changed? Um, it's debugging. Right. right. So when a normal person has to go and do debugging, they're going to say, I'm changing majors. I don't know what's wrong with you people. You know, right. <laughs> nobody should do this. This is awful. It's <laughs> intolerable. Yeah. That we are able to do this because there's something seriously wrong with us. Nice. <laughs> But yeah, yeah I, and I agree with you. One of the best measures of a good, talented programmer is their ability to debug. Well, and that, if you want to boil it down, I think it's the ability to do problem solving in general. Right. And I think that's the thing that it is not being taught. And in some sense, it can only be taught by having, by teaching kids how to teach themselves and how to learn things themselves that they don't know instead of, you know, putting the onus on the teacher to educate them, to think for them, to, to do that. And, and that's something that's not being taught. I mean, teaching kids how to teach themselves is not being taught. And I'm sorry to say that, at least in my school district. And when you bring up the, the idea that, hey, go to the Internet and research something, they're horrified by that idea. And I think maybe it's because they like to have the control of what you know has to come from the Board of Ed, blah, 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 blah. But uh, I, I, it's I a scary thought. I have a bigger, more general problem that early on computers were viewed as creative toys, mm-hmm. right? We'd write programs, we would write documents, we would make media, we'd do all these things. Sure. And more recently, it shifted, and they are now consumption devices. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's very little creative activity you can do on a tablet. Well, the, or the, the creativity is done somewhere else and fed to you from a, to a tablet. Yeah. Right, but you are no longer the creative force. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. You're mm-hmm. now just a consumer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a television. Yeah. yeah an yeah. interactive television. Or semi-interactive. I mean, the interaction capabilities of a tablet are relatively restrictive. Yeah. And that seems to be now being leveraged as an asset so that you will just consume from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the brilliant thing that Apple did was figure out that it's, we're not being creative anymore. It's just consumption. Right. But convincing all the buyers that it was creative. It was creative you know, like, to have one. Like you can put two fingers on a picture and spin it around. See, mm. you're creative. It's <laughs> right. creative thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's about the limit of creativity on those devices. Right. Yeah. 
That's really interesting. Or you can customize your avatar or, you know, do something that it reflects you. You know, very, very self, uh, aggrandizing. Yeah. Yeah. Technology and the is. devices that came just before Apple's were trying to figure out how to retain the, the creative component right. and they were failing. Well, are they, remember Microsoft Courier, the product that all never yes. actually shipped, which was the sort of folding two screen tablet? Nope. Yeah. They were modeling it after the moleskin. And that was supposed to be a device for create, you know, helping to capture your creative moments. Like I really want that device that mm. they, they ended up never actually making it, mm. but they're not, I don't know that it would have been successful in the marketplace because that kind of, I'm the kind of guy who's constantly taking notes anyway about things I'm thinking about and, you know, where I want to go with ideas all the time. And I don't think most people are like that, but shouldn't we at least be encouraging it? Yeah. Well, the, that's the whole history of pen computing, right? right. And, and Apple figured out, well, forget it. People don't want this. Yeah. Consumers don't want it anyway. Right. Most of them don't. Yeah. You know, well, of them don't. When it comes to creativity, I find children anyway, like the idea of, of being creative, but in real life, it takes practice to be good at being creative. You know, I mean, anybody can take a bunch of paint and splotch and, you know, blah, 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 and, and you might feel creative. But in order to, you know, do something that, if you're going to be musical anyway, do something that somebody else would like to listen to or that you would like to listen to, or if you're going to do art, do something that somebody would like to look at, takes a lot of practice and it takes commitment. And so um, I had this experience lately with a, a, we do birthday parties at the recording studio. And this is a lot of fun because, you know, a lot of girls come in and they burn kids 12 years old, nine years old. And the biggest question, can I play the guitar? Like the electric guitar, they want to play. And I got swamped with these nine-year-old girls. I want to play the electric guitar. I want to play the electric guitar. Sure. Tune it up, hand it to them. And then they're like, sour face, hand it right back to me. Because they thought they were going to hear, you know, some really great music come out of it if they just put it on and start making boingy, 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 boingy. But uh, no, it doesn't work out that way. Yeah, the cost of learning it. I still want to focus a little bit on the software side of this because, I mean, I do, not that I always agree with Mark Andreessen, but software is eating the world is not an exaggeration. Or Do you agree with that? Like, that and that token, we get back to the fact that everything has got software in it now? Um, everything has software in it, and that software is important. I don't know that it's important that everybody know how it's made. Right. Um, I'd be happy if just the people who made it knew more about how it's made. <laughs> so you don't want to teach more people. You want to teach those few people more. Yeah. I mean, there is so much crap software. Mm. Yes, there um, is. You know, and, and we have the legacy problem, right? Every mm. company is burdened with this legacy of crappy software, which is impairing their competitiveness and mm -hmm. perhaps even threatening their ongoing existence. And it's because we're writing a lot of bad stuff. And as a profession, we need to be getting a lot better at it. I still don't, yeah, there's still this question of, is software development even a profession yet? Mm. Uh, well, no, it's not. In, in a way, it's good. If, if we had uh, formal rules for who can call themselves a programmer. Right, regulation. Yeah, I would be very concerned about that because at this point, I'm, we don't, it's still maturing enough and evolving enough that I wouldn't want it to get fixed in regulation. Right. Regulation would be impairing. Um, but at the same time, I look at some of the people who claim to be programmers and 
they're clearly incompetent and, and there seem to be a lot of them. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the thing we're all involved in right now is we're trying to level everybody up. Right. And I think that's the best we can do at this point. You know, the, they talk about iron ring events, like the moments when engineering became a real discipline. So the building stopped falling down. You know, when do we get there at software? I don't know. Yeah. The, uh, clearly, we're still facing some hard problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and we tend to be very, very slow. I mean, for example, the way we represent programs is the same way we represented them with paper tape. Pretty much. You know, it's yeah. just a stream of characters with no additional structure. That's it. We have a few languages that care about how their code is laid out. But that's just layout. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, at one time, we uh, there was a thing we used to call hypertext. Mm -hmm. And not many people know this, but the HT in HTML stands for hypertext. Yes. The mm -hmm. web was originally intended to be a hypertext system. Totally failed at being one of those. <laughs> it, was a, it was a terrible hypertext system. But the idea of hypertext is still a good one. You know, right. Uh, Engelbart and, and Ted Nelson and others did a lot of really interesting work in it. And it might be that that would be a better representation for programs. Mm. You know, something where the linkage is all done at the hypertext level. Or the declarative level. Yeah. We've got IDEs that are trying to backfill that stuff. Yeah. You know, you can ask, you know, where is this defined? Where is this used? Mm. In hypertext, that would all be a natural part of the structure. So, um, I'm, no, I'm not advocating that, yeah. but I'm suggesting that's a point of view that is not compatible with paper tape. And so, you know, and it, it is the more important part being, should we have a discussion about how we structure coding? Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, I, I think it's a reasonable thing every 50 years or so ask, are we still doing the right thing? <laughs> well, Especially when we're in, we're just coming out of our first 50. Well, that brings me to technologies like Angular and, uh, you know, in the JavaScript HTML world and XAML on the, Microsoft side, the sort of declarative syntax, do you think that uh, that approach anyway is uh, a little bit closer to what you think this future world looks like? I don't know. I think it's a really interesting experiment, mm. um, and I'm looking forward to see where that goes. I don't know that it's time to declare it a winner yet. No, sure. And sure, I but I mean the, idea the, that the approach anyway. Yeah. But I, and I appreciate that the idea here is to experiment, like you did with Jason. Do it. And I'm not supposed to call it Jason, because you had to apologize to all the Jasons in the world. Jason. Uh, uh, well, I, I've never called it uh, that word, and I'm, right. I'm, I probably never will. Now, it turns out the cor correct pronunciation is Jason. Ah, Jason. that's so much more uh, sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, so much more continental. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jason. But... The, I think the, it's at least the internet, but maybe programming in general has always run on this back of do it, try it, experiment with it, and we'll write the standards later. Um, yeah. And so it tends to be very dynamic, mm -hmm. which is a good thing, but it's also highly chaotic, which is a bad thing. Yes. And so we're constantly balancing. Well, we're, we're constantly hoping to be balancing. Um, generally, it seems better than all of the other approaches. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's the only thing worse than what we're doing right now yeah. is everything else. Yeah, so you would think having one company taking leadership and designing the whole thing and getting it right and releasing it as a unit, that turns out not to be as good as the crazy, chaotic thing that we're doing on the web. We're actually doing, yeah. It's a it's really well, interesting it, place. That's, that's debatable. I mean, there are those that say having one company in charge can... Uh, 
can make innovation happen faster, can make innovation more cohesive. Sure. But it also, you're putting all your trust in that company. And if they get it wrong, you're, you're all screwed. I guess that's the downside of having one company in charge. And which you, you certainly don't have that in the web world. You have all these competing technologies. Well, the one company thing makes a lot of sense if you're the one company and if you're a sponsor. I suppose. Yeah, sure. But, and, you know, they, they tried it, you know. Um, so in 2000, uh, Forrester published a, a report which said that the web was dead. Nice. That um, the next thing was going to be the X-Internet, which was going to be an application delivery system, that the simple document retrieval thing mm -hmm. had reached the end, mm. just like Waze and Archie and Gopher. You know, mm -hmm. The next thing was going to be the X-Internet. And Microsoft believed them, as a lot of people did, mm -hmm. and disbanded the IE team and went to work on .NET, which was their interpretation of what the X-Internet was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and invested very, very heavily in that platform mm -hmm. and was surprised when a few years later the web didn't die, that it came back as Ajax and mm -hmm. now as single-page applications, which is the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why we had to give it another name again, but <laughs> we did <laughs> right. that. And that was kicking the other thing, you know. So the things that used to be done in Visual Basic are now being done in JavaScript. Right. And the one company doing a thing which they thought was going to be better than the web did not beat the web. Right. The, the web struck back and won. Sure. Although, I mean, it's a, it is a continuum. There's also a great discussion going on in the mobile space that says mobile web is losing to the mobile app. That maybe Forrester's interpretation there of this you know, X space that was app centric where the internet is just the communications medium for moving data around, you know, the apps are doing very well. Mm -hmm. uh, they are, but I'm, I'm in this for the long game. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately open wins. I would tend to agree, but there's no reason you can't do open and app. Um, yeah. Although from my perspective as a programmer, I want to be able to write a program and potentially deliver it to everybody in the world, and I don't want to have to convince any other company that I should be allowed to do that. Right. And that's my fundamental disagreement with the App Store. I, I want to be able to, to disintermediate that stuff. I want to be able to reach everybody on the planet. I mean, the strength to me of the App Store is that the average mortal is not well equipped to assess software. And the App Store gives a quality barrier, sort of gives a sense of curation, says anything coming from here is safe. Yeah, but it's a self-interested kind of safe. Without a doubt, yeah. Doug, I'm totally on board with your ideals. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I'm not predicting winners or losers here. But in the long term, I think and I hope that open wins. Yeah, and I, you know, you can see both sides of this argument. Um, but like I say, uh, your ideals are totally in line with mine. I do not like having uh, a third party in charge or, or a single company in charge of all of that stuff. But I do like having a curated app store. Uh, it doesn't have to be curated by a company, however. You know, there are, there are models out there of, shall we say, crowd community oriented curated models that that do work as well and in theory the open model should be the safer model but we just had arguably the worst blow to open software uh from a security perspective with uh, the heart bleed incident mm. 
I, I don't know if you have an opinion in, in that space. Um, of, I, I'm a contrarian. So my view on it is that the open thing is the one bit of good news in that story. I'm not going to disagree with you there. Um, because it was open, we understand how it happened and why it happened right. and, and how it's going to get fixed and, yes. and all of that, which might not have happened if it had been enclosed in a in a one company. So the only thing worse right. than Heartbleed was every other way you could have dealt with this. Yeah. Um, so for me, the real horror story in this is that we are still writing critical software in the sea. <laughs> I love it. That, Boy, you yeah, that. you're not wrong there. That um, for all of the talk we have about innovation, it's been 40 years and we're, and we still don't have a better system language. Right. That's, that's mm -hmm. ridiculous. <laughs> that, why, why are we not able to, to innovate effectively on, on that most critical technology? That need, why are we still hand coding boundary checking? Shouldn't this be intrinsic? Well, and the reality is that the open, the open SSL is one, uh, secure layer protocol. There are many. From my perspective, um, I don't like HTTP. I think it's too complicated. I don't like SSL. I think it's too complicated. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really important that we have protocols which can reliably and securely deliver this stuff. And mm -hmm. we don't have it. And that's another place where innovation is failing. Mm. And I'd point out everybody else's SSL stack is written in C2, as far as I know. Like the, the language, the, it's not that that approach was necessarily better or worse. It's what they're all doing. So you mentioned that uh, the the next language and the next platform, you have some ideas about what you'd like to see uh, in your keynote anyway. Yeah, well, the difficult thing about figuring out which way is next is what direction is forward. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of voices with opinions as to what the next way to go is, and most of them are saying, go back to where we were, hmm. that we don't like it where we are. Yeah. We, we think we liked it better where we were. That's next is going back. I don't think that's ever the correct choice. It's always, there is only forward. There is no back. Uh, well, actually, there is some back. So, um, for example, in number systems, mm -hmm. in the very first computers, we had decimal floating point, which I think was the right way to do it. Mm -hmm. And we then departed from that and got into binary floating point and uh, two's complement ints, right. which are both, I think, deeply problematic and error prone. And so I want to take a big step forward all the way back to EDSAC <laughs> and say, you know, Wilkes got it right. And we should pay attention to that and redo it and start Why away from that. Why does it go away from that? It's because of rounding errors and things like that? Um, well, there are a lot of things. So my problem with int is that if you have a value that's too big to store, the thing we do is delete the most significant bits and ignore the problem. Yeah. It's, I can't imagine a worse thing to do. Yep. Um, and, but we do that and we've been doing it for so long, we can no longer see how wrong it is mm. and it causes errors and doesn't need to. It's an unnecessary and source of It causes the worst possible error. Yeah. Yeah. You got something which is big and is now very small. Yeah. Is it? And, and a lot sense. of our APIs that look at file sizes, for example, take ints. Really? You know, come on.
That's that's like the classic problem. But if I remember size, correctly, the reason we created it is because they were fast in our processors. This was a hardware limitation back mm. in the day. It was driven by hardware. So in the 50s, right. um, ALUs were made out of vacuum tubes. Right. And the more tubes you had, the more power it would draw, the more it would cost to build, the faster it would fail, mm-hmm. all those problems. Mm-hmm. So someone figured out if we do add with a complement, then we don't have to implement subtract. Right. And that was a good trade-off in the 50s. And I remember learning two's complement in the 80s. So we kept doing it. We kept doing it. Um, and when the CPU, when the microprocessors were invented, mm-hmm. um, they weren't made out of tubes, but gates were still very expensive. Right. And so they wanted to get them small. And so they started over. Right. And they did it there. And then when microprocessors rose up and took over the world, we were stuck with that. That's interesting. The fu- I mean, the funny part here is that there was a movement to simplify then. I wanted to simplify the number of tubes, so I made the way I expressed numbers more complex to simplify the costly pieces of the tubes. Mm. And now you're talking about simplifying at the highest level. Let's get rid of all these different number types, go down to the original number type that did everything we needed it to do. Yeah, I want to optimize for the humans. Right. Yeah. Because ultimately... If we don't understand what the machines are doing, then confusion results, and, and that's never good. So the other thing that happened was um, EDSAC had decimal floating point. Okay. It was software emulated, but that's how they wrote applications. And uh, they weren't sure if that was a good idea when they started, but it clearly proved out. And the only thing that was wrong with it was the software emulation was too slow. Right. So the next step was we want to put that into hardware. And it turned out, or someone figured out, if we do binary floating point instead of decimal, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to implement. We can use a lot fewer tubes, and cheaper. it's a lot cheaper and faster. Because it um, to normalize using a shift is a lot faster than doing a divide by 10, which was the alternative. Right. Um, so we did that, and that became the basis of scientific computing. But the business users couldn't tolerate that because binary floating point does terrible things to money. Yeah, it loses pennies. Mm-hmm. And they can't afford to do that. It's criminal to do that. Mm-hmm. So they came up with their own system, um, BCD, binary coded decimal. And it had the advantage that you didn't have to do a divide by 10. You could do a shift by 4. But it came with other problems. And so we had two separate worlds of numbers. And it, and it was all... Whereas originally, in the first implementation, there was just one. Right. But um, the cost of hardware caused it to fork into two. Mm. And we have not revisited that idea since then. <laughs> it's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? Since the 50s. Um, and I'm now saying it's time. You know, let's, right. let's redo it. And it simplifies so many things. It does. So one of the things that JavaScript got right is that it only has one number type. Right. And that means, as a programmer you cannot make the mistake of choosing the wrong type. Right. Mm. Which is a good thing. The only problem is, it's the wrong type. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know, it, it should have been decimal floating point. Right. And we need it to be decimal because one of the things we want to do with JavaScript is add people's money. Yes. And yeah. you can't do that in binary. And, and you know, there are problems with binary just... It's perfect in its own world, and, it, and if you're constrained to the scientific stuff and you don't actually look at the numbers, it's good. But when you look at the numbers, they're always wrong. 
right? There's always some weird bit of insignificance that's tacked yes. on the end, so, which isn't even there. It's the result of trying to do the binary to decimal conversion in a system which is that well, complicated. Well, it seems like an impossible problem to fix in JavaScript because this is such a standard language. If you change the fundamental, I mean, you're, you're, you'd be pulling the rug out from under everybody if you change that fundamental type and and you know okay if you added a new type that would that would be okay but now you're making the language more complex yeah so i i completely agree with that assessment so for me javascript is a lost cause it's got to start over <laughs> we've got to start over so i'm now an advocate of the next language i don't know what it is i don't know who's going to make it up but you know, some of the things it looks that it looks like. Yeah, one of the thing, one of the properties I think it should have is a single number type, which is a number type which is compatible with human understanding, which is high performance. Could it be a subscript of C sharp? You think a subset rather? Well, it, one view is that uh, TypeScript is that subset, mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm not a fan of, of TypeScript, so I. That might be the next language. I'm hoping it's not. Yeah. Now, why is that? Because I don't think it's pushing us in the right direction. Um, and I'm not completely confident as to what that right direction is, but I'm well, hoping Why is it the wrong direction? Because it's where we've been. And I think progress is most Forward. likely someplace we haven't been yet. Well, you heard it here, folks. Thanks. That, that's, uh, that's a show. Thank you, Mr. Crockford. It's a pleasure talking to you, and I really enjoyed your keynote today, as Richard did, and we're, we're just happy as heck that you could sit down with us today. Well, thanks. And we'll see you next time on Dot Networks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the 